Oh, a worship service is an absolutely remarkable thing, isn't it? As we gather together in the name of Jesus, it's something pretty unique, not just because we confess sins. Um, it may at times feel like a sing-along or like a lecture. It's neither of those things. In reality, here's what's happening at a worship service. We're gathering together in the presence of the risen Messiah with the great cloud of witnesses who've gone before us and with innumerable angels in festal gathering, as Hebrews puts it. And we're gathering in that way to offer him our praise, which simply means to admire him and rejoice in who he is and to be transformed more into his image. There are many things that the saints of old did not understand. So when we bring our lack of understandings to church, we're in very good company, right? Peter looked back on the prophets of the Old Testament and said, you know, they, they weren't even, they weren't clear on what they're prophesying about. They wanted to be. It wasn't for lack of trying. They were gazing forward, as it were, trying to discern information about this Christ that they were prophesying about but they only knew in part. And there are things that the angels who are currently standing in the full presence of God in heaven don't understand. They are also created, right? Things of the gospel, Paul says, into which angels long to look. So when we bring our unknowns and our ignorances and our confusions to church, we're in very good company. Very good. And we have that in common with all of them. The unknowns. But we have this in common too. We know him. We know Jesus. And in Jesus's mighty presence, we take all of our unknowns, all of the things that would unsettle us, keep us up at night, all the things that would unsteady us, all the things that cause us anxiety, and we just lay them at his feet. And then we're steadied. And then we're calmed. Not by great answers, but by a great savior. So before we read our sermon text in John's gospel, I want to pray for help from Psalm 131, which is one of my favorites. So let's go to Jesus in prayer now from the psalm. Oh Lord, Our hearts are not lifted up. Our eyes are not raised too high. We do not occupy ourselves with things too great and too marvelous for us. We have calmed and quieted our souls like weaned children with their mother. Like weaned children are our souls within us. So, O Lord, calm and quiet our souls within us now as we hear your word and find rest in you. We don't need to know everything, and we don't need to understand everything, but we want to know you, and we want to be known by you. In your mighty name, amen. Amen. Well, you can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1, or you can follow along on the screens. John chapter 1, we're going to cover the last portion of what we covered last week again, uh, and that's going to be verses 29 through 34. And we're going to explore through those verses how to love and follow Jesus with our unknowns. And we've all got them. 
So in, in three points, um, as per usual, the ignorance of John, the revealing of Jesus, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So let's read from John 1, 29 through 34 now. And just as a side note, while you're flipping there, uh, in these beginning sections of John, where John the author is writing about John the baptizer, which are two separate people, I'm going to try to call him the baptizer so we know who I'm talking about. And when I talk about John, I'll try to call him John as the author. So I hope that helps. Um, Starting in verse 29, this is talking about the baptizer. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So number one, the ignorance of John. Now, you may have noticed my son William looks something like me. He also looks something like his mom. And if you were to ask me, John, how do his genetics and DNA makeup work that he can look so much like both of you? I would say I don't know. But I know William. And I see myself in him. And I see my wife in him. I see his grandparents in him. But I don't know. But I know him. There's so much we don't know. We all walk around with a whole lot of ignorance. Science and genetics and mathematics. And when I try to help the kids with their schoolwork, it's all very clear how much I don't know. He's like, Dad, how do you divide fractions? I'm like, I have no idea. Call Mr. Michael. He's much better with numbers. There are things about the Bible and theology that I don't know. There are things about the Bible that baffle me, guys. And I've spent years of my life studying this stuff. This is a complicated book. It's a complicated faith. There's so much I don't know. And I think you can probably relate to that. John the baptizer could. He was a lot like us. Twice in just these five verses, we read John saying, I did not know. I didn't know him. Which is a weird thing to say when you do know him, because John the Baptist is the cousin of Jesus of Nazareth. He knew him on some level, it seems. Um, he was, you know, Mary, Jesus's mother's relative was Elizabeth, who was John the baptizer's mother. And so while they may have spent some time apart as children, they certainly had an awareness of each, of each other. So when he saw Jesus, he surely knew that's Jesus of Nazareth. That's cousin Jesus. 
So what did he mean by saying repeatedly, I did not know him? Well, he didn't know that cousin Jesus was God's chosen king. He did not know that his cousin is the promised one from the line of King David, who would take the Davidic throne and rule forever. John did know that he was commissioned by God to go baptize people with water so that God's chosen king could be revealed. He knew that much. He says, for this purpose I came baptizing with water, so that he might be revealed. But he didn't know who he was going to be revealing. So there John is, standing there baptizing, doing his thing that he doesn't even fully understand what he's doing. And his cousin walks up. And we know from the other three gospels, Jesus walks up and says, you've got to baptize me. And it wasn't until, apparently, John saw heaven open and the spirit of God come down like a dove and remain on him. That's when his ignorance took flight in the presence of the real person of Jesus. But he he didn't know that first. There was a lot John didn't know. He was like us. The baptizer will not have understood how the Trinity worked. How is there three persons in one God? Somebody came to me the other day and said, John, what's the, what do we mean when we say God is one in essence, but three in persons? He said, what's essence? I'm like, I don't know. Let me look at the papers that I wrote 10 years ago. What is essence? I don't know. John didn't know either. And John had the same Old Testament we do. It's approximately 622,000 words. It's the same size as uh, Tolstoy's War and Peace, roughly. Except, which is, you know, that book that we all know about, but have none of us read. And so it's the size of War and Peace, but inside it's written in ancient Hebrew with a smattering of Aramaic in 39 books spanning thousands of years by multiple authors and editors. It's incredibly complicated. So when you pick up your Old Testament and think, this is hard. Yes, it is hard. There's so much we don't know. Don't beat yourself up that you don't get it. (laughs) I don't get it. There's so much. But do not let what you don't know keep you from Jesus. Don't let the difficulty of most of your Bible keep you from the person it's all about. In our text, the way that Jesus is revealed to the baptizer isn't by a careful examination of the texts and the information. He had done that. We should examine, right? Part of what I want to say to you today is not Get rid of your questions. They don't matter. It's your questions matter more than you know, but reprioritize your questions. They take a back seat to the person of Jesus. John had questions. John studied. John was studious, but God revealed Jesus to him, not his studies. And when God reveals Jesus to you, you take what you don't know and you lay it at his feet. And you can say, I didn't know him, but now I know him. I don't know how genetics work, but I know what Jesus looks like. God is not inviting you to suspend your intellect. I really dislike the phrase leap of faith. Cards on the table. This is a thinking religion. 
Our God created intellect. Rationality was his idea. God is inviting you to submit your intellect to the one who created it. He's inviting you to be a lifelong student of Jesus. We call that a disciple. That's what that word means. All right, I didn't plan this, so bear with me. I'm going to turn to Matthew 13, 52. You're welcome to look at it. Because that point was over faster than I wanted it to be. <laughs> Matthew 13, 52. Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Weird verse. Um, God put that on my heart like five years ago, and it has helped me and nourished me ever since. Here's what that verse is saying. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you're something like a scribe, a scholar. Whether or not you feel like a scholar, congratulations, you're a scholar. And as a scholar who's been discipled, apprenticed in the kingdom of heaven, following after Jesus. You're also like a a rich estate owner who's been, you've inherited this estate with a vault and you open up this vault and inside is endless treasure. And the text, the grammar of the text is glorious because it invites you not to bring out your treasure, show it to people and put it back. Give it away. Your treasure has no end. It's It's freely to be given because it was freely received. And he says, you bring out of your storehouse as the scholar disciple, treasures old and treasures new to give away. What does that mean? Part of what it means is this. You'll know something about Jesus that you love from the Bible. As you continue to read your Bible and pray and draw near to Christ, take those old truths that you lean on and give them away to people. Here's what I love about Jesus. Here's how God has helped me. And as you are a lifelong student who doesn't have the answers but follows the person, you will get new treasure revealed to you time and again. If you read the Bible through every three years, I guarantee every three years you're going to be like, I don't think I've ever read this before. There's so much in here that's new. It's because it's alive. Because this book doesn't matter. But God's word stands forever and his spirit makes it alive to you and you will get new treasures. That's your whole life. You're a scholar in the kingdom of heaven and you don't have to know everything. All right, sidebar over. Point number two, (laughs) the revealing of Jesus. So if you were to go home and decide you didn't want to watch the Super Bowl today, you wanted to watch Star Wars instead, which... I commend to you. Um, (laughs) uh, If you were to go home and watch one of the new Star Wars movies, right? those new three that made friends like divide forever on whether they're good or not, they're going to make a lot more sense to you if you've watched the original trilogy from the 70s and 80s. They are independently watchable. They are standalone movies. You can watch them on their own and it's fine, but they're going to make sense in the context of the original trilogy. This story in John's gospel is like that. The original trilogy, so to speak, that John is writing in conversation with is from 1 Samuel 16. 
Uh, you're welcome to flip there. First Samuel 16. This is something like a thousand years before, right? I, I, I don't know. Ryan, how long is it between David and Jesus? Like 800 years? I think that's right. He doesn't know. Yeah. Thank you. Sermon application. Um, it's a long time before Jesus, just for context. And so let me set the scene for you before we read. Here's what's happening. Um, God had finally given Israel a king. His name was Saul, and he did not follow after God. And so God appointed his chosen king instead of the people's chosen king. And he sent his prophet, Samuel, to go anoint the king. Samuel said, who do I anoint? God said, I will reveal him to you. So Samuel's going with a few things he does know, but a lot of things he doesn't. He's going to Bethlehem. He knows it's going to be in Bethlehem. He's going to the family of this man named Jesse, a descendant of Boaz. He goes, it's going to be one of Jesse's sons, but I don't know who. God has a king, but I do not know him. And one by one, Jesse's seven, first seven sons are brought before Samuel. And each time Samuel goes, well, this is an impressive guy. This must be the king. And God says, nope, that's not him. I'll reveal him to you. That's not him, etc." So that's our backdrop. Let's start now. First Samuel 16, verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. God revealed King David to Samuel who anointed him. Now, Samuel didn't anoint him to make him king. He anointed him to acknowledge the king God had made. That's an important difference. Now you can flip back to John chapter 1. We'll spend the rest of our time there. Um, Samuel is to David as John is to Jesus. John the baptizer knew he was commissioned to baptize so that the king may be revealed. But he didn't know who. He says in verse 31, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water. That, purpose clause, he might be revealed to Israel. But he didn't know who. He didn't know which son of Israel, as it were, would be the king. So God said to him in verse 33, here's how I'll tell you. He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. God had to reveal David to Samuel, and God had to reveal Jesus to John. And by the way, God has to reveal Jesus to us, too. We also can't discern Jesus by our own means. And the way that God would reveal that to John is the Spirit comes down, and the Spirit would remain on him. 
um, rest on him. Back before Israel had a king, before the time of David, Israel had judges. Um, They didn't sit with gavels. They were like warlords. And judges were raised up by God to save the people of God from their enemies. That was the whole point of a judge. There was no judge until there was a need to be saved. So the Philistines come in, God raises up a judge to deliver his people. And in the book of Judges, where you can read all this, by the way, Samuel is the last judge. In the book of Judges, you can read that time and time again, every time the Lord raises up a judge, God sends his spirit down on that judge to empower him to deliver his people. Every t- I think every time. Many, many, many times at least. Some more than once. Samson, the spirit rushed upon him again and again and again. But why did the spirit have to rush on him again and again and again? Because he never remained on those judges. The spirit of God is the one who gives the power to deliver the people of God. But until later, he never stayed. Or look at King Saul, Israel's first king. The time of the judges ends with Samuel And before David, Saul becomes king. The spirit of God rushes upon Saul. And you think as a reader, having just read Judges, you're like, all right, he's going to deliver his people. This is great. Now the king has the spirit. But Saul does not follow God. And so the very next thing after the the chunk of text we read in 1 Samuel 16, the very next thing that happens, it says, Verse, I don't know, whatever, 24, whatever the last verses we read, it says, the the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David and remained on him from that day forward. Next verse, now the spirit of the Lord departed from King Saul. The spirit remained on only one king, only one deliverer in the Old Testament, and that's David. Long after David, after he was dead in the grave, the prophet Isaiah was prophesying about the coming Christ, the better David, the true and better David. And this is from Isaiah 11. He says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall what? Shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. It shall rest upon him. In Hebrew, nuach. It's where the word Noah comes from. The spirit will nuach on him. Or in Greek, it will meno. It will remain. It will abide. It's the same word. John's making this point. The one that Isaiah has been talking about. The one that we've been longing for. That David was just a picture of. Oh, it's Jesus. He's here. That's the testimony of John. And God revealed it to him when the spirit remained on the king. John knew about Jesus, but he did not know Jesus as king until God revealed it to him by his spirit. Maybe you know a lot about Jesus, but I wonder if he's your king. I'm not going to get into it today, but that's my testimony. I knew Jesus as Savior. 
I, I knew I had lots of sins I needed to be covered. But not until I was an adult did I get confronted with Jesus to be my king, my Lord. He must be both. He's never less than Savior, but he's more. Savior and Lord. Those things have always gone hand in hand. For instance, after Samuel anointed David, I said we'd stick in John, but that wasn't true, was it? After Samuel anointed David, the spirit of the Lord rushes upon him. And remember when that happens, it's to deliver the people of God. So when this huge enemy of God's people shows up, named Goliath of Gath, dressed, by the way, like a serpent in bronze scales. David crushes his head. Come on. (laughs) It's the serpent crusher. The spirit of the Lord was on him to deliver his people. So David boldly marching up to that valley to face Goliath It's not about you facing your giants. It's about Christ marching boldly to the cross and crushing the head of the serpent and delivering you. That's what the spirit of the Lord is on him for. Spirit of counsel and might. He's your king, but he's also your savior. He's your savior, but he's also your king. You must have both. Let's go to number three, the magnitude of Jesus. And then we'll talk about sandals. I baptize with water, John says, the baptizer. But among you stands one you don't know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. That comes from verse 27 from last week's text. Now, in the time of John, the baptizer, and Jesus, there was a bunch of rabbis, which just... it. Literally means great ones, but they came to use it as teacher. It was a respectful term for a teacher. There were a bunch of rabbis going around, and rabbis, what rabbis do is gather followers, disciples. Jesus was a rabbi, one of many. No one did what Jesus did, but there were a lot of rabbis. Now, rabbis were not allowed to say to their disciples, please untie my sandals, because the disciples were too worthy. That's beneath them to untie sandals. There are a lot of rabbis. There's also a lot of wealthy households, wealthy enough for servants and slaves. Only masters of those households were allowed to say to their slaves, you untie my sandals, and the slave would do it because they're not worthy enough. John says, you know the chasm between the worthiness of a servant and the worthiness of his master? I'm so far below that because Christ is so far above that that I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. That's a statement that just, you know, we're like sandals, okay, that's fine. But to every contemporary reader, it would have been staggering. Like, whoa, either John has the lowest self-esteem of any human ever. Jesus said he's the greatest man to walk the earth up to that point. Or, Jesus is the greatest human ever to come on the scene. That's what explains the magnitude of the chasm between John and Christ, us and Jesus. It's his worthiness. That's where the focus is at. 
The baptizer then goes on to compare not him and Jesus, but his baptism and Jesus's baptism, right? The Pharisees are asking him, why do you baptize with water? He says, well, I'm sent to baptize with water. He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And the chasm between those things is unbelievable. John Piper helps helps with that concept. He's a poetic preacher. He said this, John wants us to feel the vast superiority of Jesus in this contrast. Baptizing with the Spirit and baptizing with water is the difference between lightning and a lightning bug. It's the difference between a person and a painting, between a marriage and a ring, between a birth and a birth certificate, between immersion in water and immersion in God. John says, I dip people in water. He plunges people into the Holy Spirit. That's the difference between me and Christ. That's the difference between my baptism and his baptism. The real Jesus is so big, so grand, so all-encompassing that he dwarfs our objections and questions. He dwarfs our sense of lowliness or self-importance. And he makes it all a far second place to his nearness and power. And being immersed, being plunged into God, the Holy Spirit, is so adventurous and so vast that no matter how many times we've been immersed in water, we feel that for the first time, we're finally clean. Because a bath just gets rid of a little dirt on the outside. The Holy Spirit cleanses you all the way down to your soul. And so much more. <laughs> Let me make a couple clarifying um, comments and observations about this baptism. First, well, I guess it's really the only comment, is that John the Baptist's baptism is not the same as Christian baptism. It's just important to know that. If you read the book of Acts, you'll find that people who are baptized with John the Baptist's baptism are not considered to have been baptized into the church. It's something else. It's a unique first century limited forward pointing sign to the revealing of King Jesus. And once Jesus was revealed, his baptism faded away. So I know we use the same term. It would have been a normal term for Greek speakers. It just meant to be in water. You usually used it for plunging into water. You sometimes used it for being sprinkled with water. It doesn't really matter. It's just a normal everyday term for them, like bath is for us. But the point is, John said, as Jesus was revealed, he must increase, I must decrease. And he did. And so the baptism that we as Christ followers have been baptized with outwardly in water is not what we're talking about here, just to be clear on that. But that does bring us to the big question, which is, well, what on earth is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And it kind of depends, you know, what you bring to the table depends on your church background, right? Some of you will think conversion. Some of you will think speaking in tongues. Some of you may think being slain in the spirit, all kinds of different things based on how you've been taught. Basically, what it boils down to is just a few things. 
Let's stick to this text for now and learn what John wants us to see about baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I think there's three points. First, notice who baptizes. Who baptizes you with the Holy Spirit? It's Jesus. It's from him. So if you have received the Spirit, whether that's a conversion right, where you did not have the Spirit and now you're full of God's Spirit and you love Jesus where you didn't love him before, or whether it's you're sitting down to pray with somebody and all of a sudden a prayer bubbles up out of you that's not from you and you're like, whoa, that was the Spirit of God. Both of those things are not from you. They're from him. Jesus is the one who baptizes. That's a gift from him. John says a few verses earlier, that we are born not of blood, nor of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is how. Second thing to notice. What happens when we're baptized with the Holy Spirit is likened to baptism by calling it baptism of the Holy Spirit. Right? We're we're already using metaphorical language. So why the metaphor of the baptism? Because when you're plunged into water, your reality changes. You're immersed in something new. Your environment changes. Your makeup changes. I mean, you can't breathe that stuff. (laughs) When we're immersed in God, our reality changes. He fills us. He surrounds us. God becomes the air we breathe and the water we swim in. Our entire context of reality changes. We start to think about everything differently because we're in the spirit. I'll give you one simple example. Since becoming a Christian, I don't get to sin anymore and ignore it. I can't live with myself if I have unconfessed, unrepentant sin. You can't either. You lose sleep at night. It's because you're plunged into the spirit of God. Your reality has changed. Third, I think the last observation about the baptism of the spirit. Notice that it's the thing that John's baptism was pointing to. Right? The, the, the picture of, that John Piper used of, there's too many Johns, of um, <laughs> a birth and a birth certificate. The birth certificate means absolutely nothing without the birth that it's pointing to. It's the same thing here. John's baptism would clean the outside of a person as a forward-pointing token that they need Christ, who will be revealed. Just like Isaiah 40, straighten the roads. The king's coming. He's going to come up over that hill. Let's not have him drive on potholes. That's what his baptism was about. Jesus' baptism is the real deal. When you're plunged into the spirit, you actually get clean. He actually delivers you. It's the difference between a picture of an anatomically correct heart and a heart transplant for someone who's dying. When God reveals Jesus to you as Savior and King, one of the gifts that he gives to you is is plunging you into his spirit. And he doesn't take it away. the comforter of God will be near you. The breath of God will fill your lungs and just erupt out of you with praise and prayer 
sometimes that wasn't even from you. The dove of God broods over your chaos waters, if I can put it in Genesis language, and begins to bring beauty and order and life where there was nothing before. That's what it is to be immersed in the Holy Spirit. Sometimes in the Bible, when a person is plunged into the Spirit, strange things start to happen. (laughs) Maybe they begin speaking in tongues that they didn't know, or they begin to prophesy. I think that sometimes still happens today. I think that. But just sometimes. And if someone tells you that speaking in tongues is the proof that you're a Christian, it's wrong. It's just wrong. Because when Jesus sends his spirit into us, in fact, this is almost the other way around. When Jesus sends you into his Holy Spirit, something strange always happens. Something much stranger than tongues. Because our hearts that were once absolutely cold and dead to God begin to beat. And our eyes, accustomed to the darkness, start to love the light. And our taste buds, which loved the filth of this world, begin to crave the bread of life. Praise God. In fact, it's a peasant being made royalty. That's what happens. Because baptism is like anointing. Maybe you've noticed in the 1 Samuel 16, John 1 kind of parallel, setting them side by side, John baptizes, Samuel anoints. Baptism is like anointing. By baptism, Jesus was revealed to be the king. By anointing, David is revealed to be the king. And when we are baptized with the Holy Spirit, God reveals Jesus to us as king and testifies in our hearts that we are children of God. Royalty. Peter would call it a royal priesthood. So now, if that's true of you, let's live like royalty. If he remains in you, remain in him. If he rests on you, rest in him. 1 John, same author, I believe. 1 John 2.27 says this. The anointing that you received from him abides, that's the same word as remain, abides, rests, menho, in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. He rests in you, you rest in him. Now, as I close, three, I think three, three three-ish points of application. Because Ryan told me it's really helpful when I do that. So thank you for that. You're right. Um, Point number one. Some of you have big, bothersome questions that are really getting at you. And that you feel if you look at too closely, you might put your soul in jeopardy. I know that's true. Don't stop asking them. No one is asking you to set aside your mind, your intellect, your reason. 
God is just asking you to reprioritize them. Like we said earlier, bring your questions to Jesus and say, I might not get an answer in this life and that's okay if I get you. Number two, if you are already a born-again Christian, remember that you did not get yourself saved. And now I'm not saying remember it and go, cool. I'm saying go home, spend five minutes on your knees thanking God for delivering you. He did it. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He saves his people. He crushes the head of the serpent. And he brought you in. He made you born anew. Not you, not me. It's of God. Number three, last. If you're not a Christian, we're really glad you're here. And there may have been a lot of words, stories, and ideas that I just say naturally, because I've been immersed in this for a long time, that you don't get, and that's totally fine. There's no shame in that. The question is not, have you studied enough? The question is not, are you smart enough? The question is not, how with it is your life? The question is, do you want to know the one who loves you so much that he bore the price of everything you've ever done wrong? and will take away your sin, your guilt, and your shame, and give you his power and make you royalty. The question is, do you want to know Jesus? Everything else can wait. Nothing is more important. There's no exam to pass. There is no test. There's just looking with faith. That's why John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away your sin. Let's pray. Jesus, we worship you as that Lamb who willingly and silently went up to die for us. And I take my questions right now, the things that unsettle me that I'm probably ignoring, and we take our questions together, and we take our unknowns and our uncertainties about the future, and we put them all down in front of you. We, as Peter says, cast our cares on you, because we know you care for us, and we know you care because you proved it on the cross. And then you sent your spirit to us. And you didn't leave us as orphans. And you brought the Father's love near to us by your Spirit. So we praise you. We worship you. We bow the knee to you. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for sending your comforter and convictor into our hearts. And we ask now that as we approach the Lord's table and prepare our hearts, that we'll remember it's your table. You're the host and you're the meal. And we're just so thankful to be invited. Amen. Please take a moment and prepare your hearts.